0: Welcome, listeners, to ironradio.org. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a sports nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder.
2: And this is Phil Stevens. I'm a strength coach. I run Strength Guild, as well as Lift for Hope and Barbell Open, a bunch of other stuff, and I'm just an awesome person. So Yes, you are. I would say that. <laughs>
3: uh, Dr. Mike Zunel, <laughs> owner of Extreme Human Performance, uh, university instructor, and... In- Bunch of other stuff.
0: Mm, All right. Yeah. We're sipping coffee and doing some news and whatnot here first, everyone. Uh after the break, we're gonna talk to uh Dr. Brian Mann. Uh Dr. Nelson will sort of lead an interview with him about velocity based training. So if you're interested in that, um let's get to some stuff. Strength and muscle sport news. I owe people some news, some follow-up question news that I wasn't able to answer adequately, I felt, last week, so I checked in about it. But before I do that, Phil, you said you had a question from, what you say, Guy New Zealand?
2: Yeah, I got two things. First, Uh-oh. I'm going to tell everybody that I squatted 600 pounds last weekend. Woo. Whoa. On a new, on a new nice. So, Oh, good? The first test, yeah, it felt amazing. All it was right. heavy. It felt like a house on my back, because I haven't touched anything <laughs> near 600 that.
3: 600 pounds?
2: But, uh <laughs> The only scary part, like halfway up, my hamstring right where they reattached it cramped. Oh, so I like oh. literally stopped there. And then I was like, oh, and then I felt it was like, oh, it's just cramped. And I stood up. So it was kind of <laughs> like a half pause spot with 600 pounds. But uh, no, that was my test. I'm going to do a meet coming up in April at oh, 220. Wow. My first time at 220.
3: 220? And, uh, yeah. Like the lowest body weight
2: in <laughs> yeah. a long time, isn't it? Like Since I was like nine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that felt good. So, um, but yeah, Kenneth. Dropped me a line last night um, on the social media. said, I have a question you may be able to answer on the podcast as well. I've signed up a meet for a meet in six weeks. I signed into the 90-kilogram class. Currently, I'm sitting at 96 to 98 kg, so I need to drop about a kg per week. I've been playing around with a keto diet recently, but I'm starting to feel it's far too unsustainable. Mm-hmm. Any answers are much appreciated. Thank you. My answer was pretty straightforward, as usual. Um, so, Kenneth, like I told you, I mean, basically you're six kilograms out, but my answer would depend on, you know, what you're trying to do with this meat. If you're a new lifter, there's no chance of you breaking any records, stuff yes. like that, I wouldn't cut at all. I'd go in and weigh what you weigh. I mean, what's the point in, in, in cutting weight just to still not break records? Um, so you're just going to lose some strength most likely in this and that, and I know he has a two-hour weigh-in, so... But, and I told him if there was a chance of you breaking records, then if you were one of my athletes, we'd just dehydrate you down. You know, we'd yeah, lose a yeah. few, few kg over the next six weeks. And then, you know, have you lose that, that weight and then weigh in and then carve up and hydrate. So, um, that's kind of where we're at on that. So, I mean, it kind of depends on where you are. I'm not a firm believer in anybody cutting weight unless there's a reason to. And to me, the only reason to is breaking records, you know, or winning cash. Mm-hmm. So... Mm-hmm. uh other than that, what's the point you know so
0: yeah, we were just talking about yeah. ke- keto diets in in the classroom, and uh I actually even showed the undergrads i think it was a little bit above some of their heads, but we were watching uh, a lecture and about low carb diets and their their relationship to performance you know and uh it does fat adapted or not, and i think dr nelson agrees with this it's it's really hard to be super explosive and, and work in sort of a, you know, high power output range when you're have no carbohydrates in your body. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh,
3: yeah. I've got a article coming out in the journal for the NSCA and Andy Gelpin's pro con uh, column on the pro and con of keto diets, which probably should be out in a couple months. So, but yeah, I would generally agree with you. And I think, Most of the research supports that in general. But I think there's some cool benefits to possibly being able to do both. But you're kind of riding that spectrum really, really tight to do that. Right, yeah. And if you're new, don't mess with it. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) You know, having said that, you're right. I mean, if it's not sustainable, uh, to his question, there is the cyclical approach. You could probably do that if you're far enough out. And then, you know, cycle, the carb up on the weekend. And people do that on different, in different ways. You know, you don't have to do a sloppy refeed on the weekend, but, yeah. um, you know, that'd be one approach is be cyclical with it, I guess. So, okay, let me do something real quick then. Um, I owe people a couple of things. One, um, we had a question last week about why do the amino acid profiles differ on the label? in whey protein powders. And we were speculating, is it, could it be the diet of the cow, the breed of the cow, or is it just the processing? And I promised that I would check in with uh, Justin, Justin Straight. He might be sort of my go-to guy when it comes to specific dairy processing questions because he was on our, he was on our radio. And um, here's what he says. Uh, Hey doc, hope all is well. Whey in general should share a similar amino acid panel It would just depend on the type of whey, concentrate versus isolate. Check out the two attached docs in our mainstream, whey protein concentrate and whey protein isolate. As you can see, the whey protein concentrate, which is 80% protein, will yield a slightly lower amino acid load uh, due to other parameters that are present. For example, there's more fat, a little bit of lactose and sugar in that concentrate, whereas the whey protein isolate, which is 90% protein, will be richer you know, in amino acids sort of across the board. Uh, these are naturally occurring amino acid loads found in the way, although I have seen some companies add additional aminos like more branched chains or leucine and call out a higher panel to just try to distinguish themselves from the market. So that makes sense. And that's mm-hmm. that's in line with what we were saying uh, last week as well. Uh, and again, the only concern I think we would have would be that if, if they're purposely, instead of putting... Uh, additional amino acids in there to try to differentiate themselves they're doing it just to nitrogen spike it you know and make Mm -hmm. the protein grams look too high on the label or whatnot but and honestly i don't know why you would put additional leucine in any way product but it's already super high yeah but um that does make sense though so it probably in in a word probably is the processing and whether it's a concentrate versus an isolate uh, or a blend of the two um so just to follow up on that the other follow-up, uh, I was remiss. We were talking about nervous system tricks uh, last week. And it's always hard when we don't have everybody on the show. And it's just a reality of it, right? Because I always want to hear what, what like, what Phil and Mike have to say about this stuff. Because we were talking a little bit about um, PAP, right? Pre-activation potentiation. Like, how do you potentiate and what, what will that do for you? We were talking about stretch reflexes. My own work is with coffee. And if we can add to those nervous system enhancements. But I forgot to mention something that we, we have talked about in years past, which is jaw clenching. That's another nervous system trick with the mouthpieces and and the jaw clenching and things like that. Bill Eben's done a little bit of work with that, I know, uh, up in the Milwaukee area. But that apparently can add an immediate boost, you know, sort of through a nervous system mechanism as well. And I, I didn't pull a bunch of papers for that because we have too much else to get into. But um, like I said, I didn't want to be remiss in that too. That's that's yet another nervous system trick. Uh, Dr. Nelson, I don't know if you had anything to add about that before I move on. But
3: Yeah, so my thought on that is I think from just some of the people I've tested here, and again, it's a, a manual strength muscle test, so it's not anything that's super accurate. It's more or less just stressing them and seeing what patterns they do and then getting a copy of like their max 1RM attempt. And I think you may be able to see a little bit more performance by doing that. But I think the downside is, and again, this is anecdotal from people I've worked with, they tend to do that for almost everything. right? So if you think from a pure efficiency standpoint, if they're trying to get their glute to work and they have to recruit a lot of massive tension everywhere else, I think that's probably more on the inefficiency side. Mm-hmm. So I'd rather see them have good, you know, sort of muscular output and try to keep the rest of their body as relaxed as possible. Hmm. I and mean, granted, if you're doing a one M attempt or things of that nature, you're obviously going to have, you know, more stress overall.
0: Right. Tense um, all over.
3: You're, yeah. But your head's not doing the lifting. It's it's sort of a right. a byproduct of everything. And it's kind of fascinating to me that if you watch a lot of um, top competitors like the elite of the elite, usually their face is relatively relaxed. Not all the time. There's exceptions. Uh, if you watch the people that are maybe more middle of the pack, they tend to have a lot more other excess, I would say, muscular activation going on. And they anecdotally tend to, I think, run the risk of being injured more often too. So, hmm. yeah, I didn't see anything about injury. Highly theoretical pension. at this point, but it's just something i've seen over and over for example i had a guy here yesterday pretty you know pretty good level cyclist and in one particular movement to get like his QLs to work really well he actually had to twist his neck all the way to the left and bite his jaw together and pull his neck down which he's having all sorts of neck issues right now (laughs) Mm,
0: that's odd yeah so
3: Hmm. yeah and you know cycling he's in the cycling position doing some pretty high power output stuff for quite a while you know so he's in that of recreating that position quite a bit. Right.
0: Yeah, I'm just pointing cool. out there's some literature out there. You know, it's sort of like um even with the caffeine and carbohydrate mouth rinses, like clearly yeah. there's there's some weird nervous system mechanism underlying oh, that my. if it pans out um because it's it's obviously not blood levels of anything changing, you know, but so anyway, so just to follow up on some of the um Strangeness, you know, with the nervous system, um, and you know, some of these things are well documented phenomenon. The stretch reflex is a thing, you know. Yep. Potentiation is a known mm-hmm. thing, and then you could kind of play with it, you know, with your workouts and whatnot. Oddly so.
2: enough, on what you were just talking about, Mike, and I've seen it in real life. Here is like with, with the elite power lifters, <clears throat> um, oh, we get so used to getting everything tight mm-hmm. that bleeds into the rest of their life.
3: Yes. And, like,
2: they become very inefficient at their daily life tasks. Oh, totally. I, mean, I see like, it all the time. Okay, I'm going to go pick up my son. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> He's 20 pounds, but I'm, like, just automatically bearing down any time I lift anything. And, you know, when so when you go to do something repetitive, it's like you wear out much quicker. Yeah. uh Yeah. No <laughs> yeah it's scaling to relax relax to
3: so, the activity. They tend yeah. to go... All or nothing, everything's, you know, the 600-pound deadlift. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
0: here's one. Journal of Strength Conditioning Research 2016. Effects of jaw clenching while wearing a customized bite-aligning mouthpiece on strength in healthy young men. Drop to the bottom. And again, we'll do it. Maybe we'll dig into this more in the future. These findings suggest it is advisable to use a customized bite-aligning mouthpiece to improve strength and power performance. Uh, But again, it's interesting stuff. It's one of those weird nervous system tweaks you know, and I, I, I got to concur with Phil. I could tell you when I used to practice kendo, I would have instructors come up, you know, these Japanese guys, you know, and English is not their first language. And they're looking <laughs> at my face and they're making these scowling, you know, um, expressions. <laughs> Too much of this, you know, and because I got so used to what you're talking yeah. about, Phil, you know, crunching up my face and just, you know, really um, tensing my face and stuff. And it, at least in that sport, it's like it's something like kendo. It's almost like casting fly fishing. You know, it's about efficiency yeah. and and staying loose where you're supposed to be loose. Uh, so again, I guess yeah, we got an issue here with um, efficiency versus raw power output. You know, and that kind of stuff, or recruitment patterns and stuff. But again, just toward the with the odd nervous system tweaks, I just wanted to follow up on that. Um, cool. Here's one. Um, this is. Uh, I'll address this to uh, Phil mostly. Uh, This is from Jess. So thanks, Jess, for writing in. Just wanted to let you know I'm a huge fan of the show. I listen to you guys all the time while I'm food prepping or on my way back from training in the National Guard. I just kept forgetting to drop you guys a big thumbs up email. Thanks for all the great content for our strength sports and separating the bro science from the actual science uh, content. It's so hard to find good content in our world today. And that's the truth. Um, as an entrepreneur myself in the strength conditioning realm, I'm a big promoter of people doing great things for our sport. I'm currently in the process of re establishing myself up in Canada, uh, both with training and with food prep business after years of military service. Uh, I'm a graduate of exercise science. I have a CSCS certification who simply loves to train and help others. I must say, I was most influenced by you guys in the last few months over our talk of SKA. I believe it was anyway, it's been a while. I feel as though my skills and ability level have grown vastly, however, my knowledge component of exercise science has fallen a bit by the wayside. But no more, Um, I'm set upon getting my master's degree in exercise physiology. However, I'm not sure what else I can really do with that option. Uh, Anyway, I have a tendency to ramble, but I was hoping to hear a bit more information on training for females. I train predominantly women athletes Uh, Both physique and strength. Some guys too, but mostly women. I find the research is lacking on this aspect. Uh, And you did recently do a show with a doctor who was researching a lot of female athletes. Um, And then maybe can you send me his contact information? Thanks for all you do. I hope my donation will help you guys uh, stay on the air this year. Jess, and P.S. Say hello to Dr. Nelson for me. I had the opportunity to meet him at a fitness summit in Kansas City a few years ago. Oh, yeah. I sat next to her. Hi, Jess. <laughs> <laughs> so it just—it was a nice email, and right. I, it sort of strikes me that, you know, she's talking about I'm not sure exactly what to do with the Masters. Um, that's good thinking, Jess, actually, because as much as I love education, Phil and I cool. have talked about in years past, you know, how many hoops do you jump through at some mm-hmm. point? You got to
2: figure out what your end goal is.
0: Yeah. Like yeah. for me to
2: go go get a Masters now would be – Well, I mean, I can't say a waste of my time, but uh, it's going to be a waste of my time. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I don't need it. Um, You know, so it depends on if you're now if you're going to go to collegiate level and stuff like that. It's probably a good idea. You know, I mean, it's definitely not going to hurt. It's going to it's going to help your resume, right? um, And set you aside. But at the uh, at the public level, uh, frankly. uh, the average person doesn't know the difference between a PTA cert and a frickin' master's degree. Sadly, no.
0: um, and that's the problem there. So, it's true. Um, yeah, we've uh, actually had a I couple of students, uh, Phil. When you do the sort of the annual senior lecture for mm. one of my my graduating yeah. students, there, they one of them asked about his certification, and I said, I said, you know, Phil's had certs come and go, and I said, and I don't want to sound like this because I've done it too, but after a while. Um, what do you, you don't just forget all that stuff. I mean, it's good to yeah. stay up in your field, but after <laughs> yeah. a while, right, asking, asking Phil Stevens to go, you know, that he's not qualified to work with yeah. anybody unless he has this or that certificate when there are hundreds of them out there. Now, obviously, yeah. there's a smaller number that are valuable, but it starts to become yeah. a bit, I don't right. know. You, you get a little jaded, like, you know, everybody's mm-hmm. saying you're not legitimate unless you're one of us, and it gets a little yeah. tiresome. You know, now that's more on the cert side than the education side, but yeah, for sure. Um,
2: Um, but I don't know. I mean, as far as training women in general, man, it's not that much different. The only thing I see is I, I, some of my ladies, I tend to work on speed a lot more, especially when they're new, just teaching them how to use what they have. Um, women in general are very good at the, okay, I'm picking up 10 pounds. I'm going to give you 10 pounds of pressure. Um, which doesn't bleed that well into training for heavier weights. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's teaching them how to give everything they got. And then that, that tends to pick up over time. And then in general, women tend to do better at a higher amount of volume at a higher intensity. Um, from what I've seen, that's in general, of course there's outliers there, but, uh, you know, I've found that I can push some of my ladies, uh, Let's say if the guys are doing said and said reps at 70%, I might be able to bump that to 75 or a little higher for the ladies um, to kind of get the same training effect. Um, but I don't know if that's that's you're, – you're talking about this weird bleeding scale of – that's like when people had the – you know for a long time it was uh, like 10 sets of 3 became popular and all the guys at Westside are like, mm-hmm. yeah, 10 sets of 3 at 80% of a 1,000, not happening. You know, yeah. <laughs> so it, d- it depends on how yeah. how strong you are. So it might be part of that. You know, eighty um, percent of eight hundred is a lot different than eighty percent of three hundred, even though it's still um, eighty the, percent. The damage and the demand on your skeletal and muscular systems a little higher. Um, right. So it's yeah, true. I don't know. I mean, other than that, I mean, we're we're humans, and uh, so I mean, it's, to me, it's more of an individual thing than it is a gender thing.
0: Honestly,
2: mm-hmm. so, oh, yeah. uh, you know, I test the individual, not the gender. It's like, oh, you're a woman. You're going over here. So, <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> oh, you know, like no, you're a woman that wants to be a weightlifter. Okay, we're going to weightlift. Right. Just like John. You know? No, right.
0: I mean, so, case in point, you've uh, got some pretty elite women there that would kick the ass of a, of a guy who walked in and thought he should be trained somehow more intensely a, than yeah. they are. You
2: know? One of my girls hit a 295 deadlift for 12 the other day it's Ooh. Like, Ooh, that's pretty Puckies. strong you know? yeah, yeah so <clears throat> yeah
0: well i guess hers was more of just a, a write-in you know a yeah, com- like comment it. than a question but yeah that was good good stuff
3: yeah one other thing too nih has a huge incentive now for research in specifically women because it's been pretty easy especially in exercise phys and other areas to study guys because they don't have the time of the month and other factors that complicate your studies. So there's a big incentive now for them to actually study uh, women's physiology more, but that probably won't trickle out for another probably five-ish years or so, but it's it's coming.
0: Okay. Uh, one for you, uh, Dr. Nelson. This is from Nathan. And by the way, let me reiterate our policy for everyone. If you write in, we will use your first name. We'll try to respect your privacy and not put your last name, <laughs> your social security, or firstborn, or anything <laughs> like that. But uh, we tend to use first names. Uh, I try to follow up if I, if it seems like a sensitive question and ask. But if it seems pretty straightforward, I'm I, I'll probably use your question on air. So just just a, sort of a disclaimer. Um, so Nathan says. Um, Hey, Lonnie, a little backstory and then a question about HRV for Dr. Mike. Uh, I think he means Dr. Mike Nelson in this case. Um, I figured this is a good time to ask the question, given last week's show dealt with uh, starting a cut and getting leaner. Now, he sent this back just a little while ago, but um, I'm working on lowering calories and wanted to try a ketogenic diet uh, as I had never done one before. Here we go with the keto again. Uh, I confirmed... I was in ketosis and I enjoyed the steady energy and the mild appetite suppression. I could see this working to lean me out. However, I find that I am getting sick or picking up sniffles easier. This has happened a couple of times over the past couple of weeks, especially after longer duration aerobic style work, like two plus hours of sustained, you know, moderate intensity. Um, any thoughts behind this mechanism? Also, would using HRV? Uh, and again, listeners, right? Heart rate variability. Would that allow me to see if my recovery was impaired so that I would know to take it easier in the following days? Thanks. P.S., I'd love to buy an Iron Radio mug. How do I do that? So before I turn this over to Dr. Nelson, let me just say we have a little store link on ironradio.org and you can click there. We use Zazzle uh, to do some of that stuff. Um, and, you know, they kick us back a nice little um, a portion of that to help support the show. But we have a. We have a little zazzle store, that kind of stuff, and you could you could just go to ironradio.org, um, surf on over there. But having said that, Doctor Mike, so he's uh, he's in ketosis. He's wondering HRV can basically I think keep him monitored so he doesn't keep getting sick.
3: Yeah, I mean I think it's definitely a good idea. I mean if you look at the research on heart rate variability. It is quite good at picking up uh, potential illness, and there's not a ton of data on that, but we know that the immune system is highly integrated into there and I know just from personal experience with clients over the last five plus years with them doing daily HRV that many times i've I've had them you know pull back of their training and you know they haven't gotten sick a couple of times they haven't listened and <laughs> kept going and got sick. Um, I think there's a pretty good correlation there. I know the handful of times that I've been sick over the last five years, my HRV has been just the lowest it's ever been, which makes sense, right? Because it's a stressor your body's trying to fight off. There is some research looking at uh, upper upper respiratory infections, uh, especially with longer uh, distance training, things of that nature. In terms of the ketogenic approach, I think It can work for some people. I know some people have done it and they seem to really like it. Uh, A lot of people like the more kind of constant energy. My caveat with all that was just any other type of nutrition intervention you would do. Just monitor your training, make sure your performance is still pretty good if that's your goal or you're you're getting closer to your body composition goals. I do like the fact that he did uh, monitor it. I'm guessing that's probably some type of a little finger prick with a strip that'll tell you your levels of ketones specifically BHB levels i find even if you can only afford to buy one package of the things cuz they're stupid expensive they're like i got some sitting on my desk here they're like 3 to 4 bucks a little stick um but you know just to get you a rough idea if you're actually in ketosis or not um Yeah. So I would say he can start measuring his HRV now and just look for any changes in the baseline. I have noticed that some people who come to me and want to do a ketogenic type approach, some people have a pretty easy kind of transition to it and don't really see too many issues. Um, Other people have a horrible two to six weeks, (laughs) even though they're doing right around the same thing
0: mm-hmm.
3: and in those cases just anecdotally i've seen their hrv just drops like anytime i try to do it i'm pretty good at fasting but i try to go more than 24 to 48 hours and just really really lower carbs and i played around with ketone salts and c8 oil and a bunch of other stuff and they seem to help um but maybe i just haven't ridden that out longer than about two weeks i usually tend to throw in the towel about week two um, <laughs> right Another friend of mine, he did an experiment on that too. He measured his HRV every day and I think he did it for two to three months and he said that was the lowest HRV readings that he's ever had. Um, So I think there's a lot of individual variation uh, between that. And of course, a lot of people don't really do a ketogenic approach even remotely close to right and don't measure their levels so they don't even know where they're at. So yeah. So overall, I think it, can be useful. Just, you know, monitor it and keep track of it and see how your body responds to it.
0: Right. It's smart that he wants to monitor, you know, in some way.
3: So Yeah, yeah. no, I totally agree with that. And then you have the decision if it's, you know, going down, but you feel pretty good. Eh, maybe go a little bit longer or everything else looks good. Um, the thing I do like about HRV is it does kind of give you a little bit of that, that window where you're Especially with illness, I've noticed some people will feel a little bit off, but not too bad. And then if, in my case, if my HRV or clients is super low, I'll automatically probably pull back right away instead of really pushing it just to to see what happens. Right. The
0: only thing I could really add or confirm is... It's true that certain fats and carbohydrates, they are sort of immunomodulatory. They can affect your immune system in different ways. Um, there's some interesting work with carbohydrate ingestion during intense workouts, reducing certain, um, you know, affecting your immune system in different ways. Uh, mostly it's with preventing hyper responses of immune markers like interleukin six or interleukin one yeah. beta or, or that sort of thing. Um, and I, I think carbohydrate ingestion, this is very anecdotal, but I think it has sort of a calming effect, you know, on your central nervous system and that sort of thing. Even for people who are fat adapted, um, I think it's probably, it's an interesting argument that if you could get fat adapted, is your brain happier on burning ketones or would it have just preferred the blood glucose, you know, uh, and that might be an individual thing. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I'd have yeah, to give no. some further thought to the, you know, boost in your immune system if you think that, that that's suffering, you know. Yeah, and the one bugger on the fat adaptation,
3: too, is that if you carry that out longer, like there's data on this with a ketogenic diet that at some point, probably due to the PDH enzyme changes, you could refeed with carbohydrates and your glycogen levels may be still OK. So Jeff Bullock's faster study has shown that, but you performance testing for speed and power, especially you may not be able to access them as well. So just because you can get glycogen levels back up doesn't mean you have all the other sort of working machinery and everything to necessarily be able to access that immediately. And that'll also bump you out of ketosis for a while. So, I mean, over the years, there's been the, the cyclic ketogenic diet has been around for freaking decades. Yeah. And it's one of those deals where on paper, it sounds awesome but I have yet to have it ever work with someone.
0: <laughs> yeah. Just, I, well, I've seen, I've seen guys awful. backstage basically do that sort of thing and successfully diet for competitions, but I don't think their end goal is massively reprogramming their machinery as opposed to just trying to keep insulin low and carb relatively right. out of their diet, you know, kind of thing, almost a calorie balance sort of thing. But it's a good point. And, you know, we were just talking about that in the classroom that diet can induce adaptations uh just like exercise can you know a lot of exercise science students they're so used to hearing you know tr- they want to learn about training results you know and all the different adaptations mitochondrial biogenesis and all this stuff that happens with certain kinds of training and our nervous system adaptions adaptations and and the way you eat does that, too. You can induce different yep. enzyme systems. And like you said, and then how weird would that be if you got a full gas tank of muscle carbohydrate, of glycogen, and you really can't access it that well because you've been on such a low-carb, high-fat diet for so long. Your body is no longer recognizing that so well.
3: You know, it's, yeah, it's you it kind just... of lose metabolic flexibility. And the last point on that, too, is that it appears that fasting, however, does not do that. So my preference is if people are really looking for the kind of combination of performance and body composition, not just purely body comp, that a period of fasting, I think, is better because there's probably less PDH enzyme changes. Uh, Muscle glycogen doesn't really get tapped during fasting. And when you add carbohydrates back in, there doesn't seem to be that access issue that we can see with super long periods of extremely low carbohydrates.
0: So when you say fasting, you mean fairly short-term fast, like a day or two? or what do you...
3: Yeah, I have people slowly work up to a 24-hour period over yeah. about four to eight weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's my preference. So take, like, say, once you're adapted to that, say, like, Monday is your fasting day. So you'll eat dinner with your family Sunday night, and then you'll eat dinner with your family Monday night. Uh, training initially will just be off, maybe some you know light aerobic work, something like that. Mm-hmm. So the goal of that day is to drive insulin down. Yep. The goal is to cut calories in a super easy way. Not, not necessarily fun, but it's not as bad as it sounds. But simple, right. But simple, and then not mess with your body's ability to use carbohydrates, but still pushing it to use a lot of fat on that day. Yep. So the rest of the week is you know the typical bodybuilding type fare you know, higher protein, moderate fat, adjust your carbohydrates to your training type thing. And, you know, I found that that tends to work pretty good for especially people who still want some performance aspect to body composition also.
0: Right on. Yeah, that's probably worth a topic in itself in the future. As a whole show in itself. Oh, for sure. (laughs) Because, yeah, because there's the issues of reprogramming your machinery that you pointed out versus just trying to keep insulin and and carbohydrates out of the picture for a day, you know, and that sort of thing. I'll tell you what, we are pretty much out of time. I'm going to table this last one I have in my hand. It's a, just to tease everybody a little, it's a study on a new enzyme blend uh, that may help people recover from muscle soreness. Uh, It's not really that new of a topic, but I think it's something that we can have fun discussing about the role of some of these uh, quote-unquote digestive enzymes and how they might help with DOMS, because this just kind of crops up in the literature every so often. So there's a some new stuff on this so we'll table this until next time uh and then we'll go to break and when we come back we're going to talk to dr brian Mann. hey listeners this is dr lonnie lowry
3: All right, welcome back to Iron Radio. It's uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson here with Dr. Lonnie Lowry, Coach Phil Stevens, and today our special guest is Dr. Brian Mann. Say hello. Well,
1: uh, hello guys. Uh, thanks for having me on here. I'm honored to honored to be on your show.
3: Yeah, thank you very much for being on here. And usually when we have a, a new guest, we usually go into a little bit of their origin story, and then after that, uh, we're going to talk to you about some velocity-based training. So Give us a little background on yourself, and how did you get into training and education and coaching and all the great things you do?
1: Well, I got into training because uh, it's no surprise for anybody that I've got a birthmark. And I was made fun of mercilessly uh, as a, a child, and I thought if I got bigger and stronger than everybody else, that uh, they would leave me alone. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, <laughs> You know, go figure, if you can whoop everybody's ass, they they quit talking smack. Uh, and then from there, I, you know, I got into the sport of powerlifting in high school. Uh, and I you know, did pretty well there. And it actually led to uh, me being able to start as an intern strength and conditioning coach by sitting at the right place at the right time. I was actually hungover, skipping one class to study for another, sitting out in front of this uh, Taco Bell that was on campus so I could have bean burritos for my stomach, and Diet Pepsi to keep me awake. And uh, one of my buddies that was on the football team that I played with in high school uh, was walking by and stopped and talked to me. And this was about, oh, three weeks after the uh, a big powerlifting meet. And uh, the head strength coach, Rick Perry, who's now with the Chicago Bears, uh, walked up and Fitz was like, hey, he's a powerlifter. And Rick's like, well, shit, he looks like one. you want a job? And I'm like, he said, I can't pay anything. And I'm like, well, I've always wanted to be a strength coach. So yeah, let's go. And I just closed up my books and went up to the weight room. And you know, the rest is history. I've been doing it ever since 1999 now. Well, until January 1 of 2016, where I'm no longer coaching, but I'm doing the science side of things.
3: Oh, that's awesome. Very cool. And you mentioned getting into the science side too. So, did that kind of happen around that same time then? Or how did that play into all this?
2: Well,
1: basically, I was always really inquisitive. And it really, Rick is the is their reason. Uh, he had all of the old Bud Sharniga, Sport Press translated texts. And uh, he had some notes written in them. And they were actually photocopies of photocopies. So, it was pretty rough. And I photocopied <laughs> a photocopy of the photocopy. So. Um, <laughs> I probably ought to give Bud Sharniga some money if I ever run run across him. Uh, (laughs) Man, I just realized I just, like, you know, implicated myself for piracy or something like that, but oh well.
3: Um, It's okay. I think the the time course on that ran out. It was eons, eons ago, so.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was like 20 years ago. So the statute of limitations has got to run out. That's right. There you go. Uh, And basically, you know, the just reading that stuff and being able to link different things from my powerlifting background and the things that I'd read from other books, uh, from like stuff from Fred Hatfield and read linked to the Soviet stuff. And it just, uh, you know, Pat Ivy, who was my boss here at Missouri for a long time. Uh, he would always do personality tests and my uh, personality tests, you know, like a fiber B and MBTI and there was some other strengths quest or strengths finder or something like that. And basically, it found that I had like the psychological profile of a scientist. That uh, I looked at and I stored. It was called being a collector, where you collect and store information in the back of your mind, and you've got it right there, uh, ready to go for anything that happens to make that link. And you know that's how the velocity-based training actually came is is from that. But you know it was just that Rick encouraged me to read. And anytime that I finished one book and I'd ask him questions, I think he didn't want me asking too many questions. So he just <laughs> handed me another book to read
2: there and you go.
1: Just storing all that info and linking it all together. Uh, that's where the science side of things really, really came up.
3: Very cool. And then you went on to eventually do your, finish your PhD, correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I bounced around a little bit in strength and conditioning, but not too much. Uh, yeah, you know, I was at Missouri State as a student assistant for five years. Arizona State under Joe Kin, Tulsa under Pat Ivy, back to Missouri State with Rick. Then Pat got the job here at Missouri, and I've been here ever since. Now I'm in my fifth year as a faculty member, uh, second year not coaching. So I've been here since yeah, 13, 13 years now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's nuts. It goes along. It goes really quick. Uh. But, yeah, I forgot where I was going. I haven't had enough caffeine yet.
3: That's all right. Um, I know when I met you up in in person, it was probably two years ago now, that we had talked a little bit about some of the research you had done for your Ph.D., which, if I remember correctly, was not exactly velocity-based training, but, you know, obviously related to coaching and performance and that nature.
1: Yeah, my my, uh, dissertation was actually on the APRE, and the pilot study that we had done was that 2010 paper that came out on the APRE versus uh, traditional linear periodization, which is not the best terminology to use. I I know that now. I didn't know it at the time, Uh, but uh, in short-term time periods in college football. Uh, So that was the pilot study. I had more data that, uh, in some aspects, just simply reinforced what I had found, and in some aspects, actually contradicted the pilot study. Ah, uh, the only real contradiction was the two twenty five bench press test. Uh, we found that there was actually no chain, no difference between the groups and the gains of two twenty five, and that's what uh, set myself and uh, myself down the path of working with Jerry Mayhew a lot on the two twenty five research, which we've got probably one more paper coming out that will uh, you know be the last one in the line.
3: For people listening, what was the main difference between the the two setups in the study and what was the the theory kind of back then so they can get a little bit of the background on it?
1: Yeah, so, you know, the linear periodization, it's basically the linear progression, I guess, would be the appropriate way to say it rather than a linear periodization. Where basically you started at, I, I can't remember the percents off the top of my head, but, you know, in the college setting, we've only got six weeks, right? I've never had more than six weeks train a football team a soccer team or whatever in the college setting we've got uh you know the off-season seasons right so you've got spring football spring soccer fall baseball fall softball all these sports have got a off-season season season. so you go for five or six weeks in strength training and then you go into another season so the 12 and 16 week periodization studies and programming studies are essentially irrelevant And whenever I was at Missouri State, Southwest Missouri, whatever you want to call it, with Rick, uh, reading super training, I saw this thing called the APRE. And I tried it with my women's soccer team and my field hockey team and my softball team. Tried it with all three of them just to make sure that there wasn't a fluke. And uh, just a few weeks in, the same thing happened with all of the teams that we were doing you know, about four weeks in, we would do be doing sets of six to eight with their old 1RM. And I'm like, holy wow. cow, this in is... In a couple insane. weeks? Yeah, it was about four weeks. Wow. Four weeks in. And uh, I was like, wow, this is unreal. And uh, whenever we got to Missouri, we needed to improve the strength of our football players. And, you know, because essentially the we had to do a lot better job of developing than we were doing recruiting and it's not a, a slight to anybody it's just whenever you know in 2004 we're you know in the basement so the people who are wanting to come here we're gonna have to do a great job of developing it's not going to be like in the big 12 of texas and oklahoma or nebraska who you know they they get four and five star recruits well we got two and three stars and we had to, to develop them so we had to improve their strength because they were coming in as cow would say weaker than kittens and uh <laughs> And that's what we did was the APRE. I was like, hey, Coach Ivy, I, this is what I've done before. These are the results I've got. He's like, I don't believe you, but we'll we'll try it anyways. And we did it with a, a smaller group. And then the next year we did it with everybody who needed to get stronger. Cool. And, uh, so the APRE, back to the actual point. Like yeah. the, story, uh, the APRE, essentially, you've got two major work sets. And the third set determines the weight that will be done on the fourth set. And the fourth set determines the weight that will be done on the following session. That's it. You know, you know, uh, So like if I do, there's three protocols that are standard. And I just stick with the three protocols because I'm not creative at all. Whenever somebody looks at the pattern, they can see the pattern. And they could make a APRE 4, an APRE-4, an APRE-9, or a, a whatever. I just went with a 3, 6, and 10. Why? They've been done, and you know the interesting thing about them is that they actually come from the original three sets of ten by uh, Captain Thomas DeLorme, yeah, uh, the femoral fracture guy. But that's yep. a that's a long story in and of itself, with the <laughs> you know from from him to Kenneth Knight to Yuri Veroshansky to uh, to me, and uh, but yeah, that third set determines the fourth, the fourth determines the subsequent session. And the results that we had found, I mean, you know, there's lies, damn lies, and statistics. But we had found that basically with the, during the summer session, whenever they're doing heavy conditioning, they were basically just on the, line, on the linear progression, we were sticking right around their PR, maybe up five pounds on the bench press and squat. We saw an average increase of about, I think it was 11 and 19 pounds on the bench press and squat with the APRE in that same time period. Uh, where there were some guys that were drastically more, and there were some guys that weren't increasing at all. And the guys that weren't increasing at all, I included them in the study, but they were sandbaggers, man. You know, <laughs> you know whenever they're like, oh, you do as many as you can. <laughs> okay, all right, that feels good. If you can talk during the middle of the set, you weren't going hard enough. And, uh, <laughs> you know, but that's that's neither here nor there.
3: For the APRE, could you give a quick example for people listening to what that would look like? With say the back squat,
1: yeah, so and so have more
3: of a visualization of it. If they want to implement right. it.
1: Not a problem. Let's say that I've got an estimated six uh, RM of 200 pounds. Just because I can do the math on that pretty easily. There, uh, you're, you warm up, then you do 10 repetitions at 50% of your six RM, so that would be 100 pounds. You do six repetitions at 75% of your 6RM, which would be 150 pounds. And then you would do as many as you could at your estimated 6RM, of up to 200 pounds, right? So, uh, why the uh, the repetition adjustment chart caps at 13, so that's where I stop people. Some people go well beyond that, but I don't see the point. If I do 13 reps, I go at 15 pounds. If I do 25 reps, I go at 15 pounds. So, what's the point of doing an extra 12 reps? Hmm. Uh, so then, uh, so my third set, let's say that I get 12 reps. Okay. I look at my adjustment chart. It says I go up 10 pounds. So my fourth set would be 210. I said my prayers, ate my Wheaties, Hulkamania lived forever. And I knock out 13 on this set. Well, I look at my adjustment chart, 210 for 13 is an increase of 15 pounds. So the next week, my estimated six RM, my set weight that I'm basing everything off of, will be 225. Now I think that there's a couple of things that fall into this. I think it's more than just that it is uh, some physiological thing. I think there's a big psych psychological aspect to it. I think the autonomy of the, uh, the the autonomy of the program has got a lot to do with it. The athletes love being in control of their own destiny, and they know that if they need to get stronger, if they want to get stronger, that they're in control of that. They're in control of how much they go up the next week. And for the athletes that were self-motivated, that was all they needed. So they went harder. Now, did that going harder, did it cause physiological adaptations? Maybe. But here's the deal, is that whenever they could go harder, whenever they had that physiological ability, they were able to. But on times whenever they weren't, there were times whenever they didn't go up that week, be it because they didn't sleep, be it because of the conditioning that we were doing at the time, whatever it happens to be, uh, they were able to uh, just do enough to get by and enough to maintain. So you know the people who were fast gainers gained fast. The people who were slow gainers gained slow. The people who were average gainers gained averagely. Uh, it just everybody got to get stronger at their own rate and they could adapt when they could adapt. and then they basically maintained when they could maintain. Now, I can't say what would happen in 12, 16, 24-week periods. can't. I don't have that data. I've never had that type of data. I will never have that type of data unless I start dealing with general population. Uh, But what I can say is that in these really short-term time periods, if you need to get strong, do the APRE. Very
3: cool. Any, Any questions on that, Phil or Lonnie?
0: No, it makes sense to I me. Yeah, I mean, I mean. It, it builds in, you know, addresses both motivation and monitoring, right? What I like about it is it builds That's, in yeah. that monitoring. Brian, like you were saying, I mean, just a, a, a direct linear approach. And we've we've kind of critiqued that on the show before, right? Mm. That you just, nope, this is the program. This is where you are. And then it's irrespective of how quickly they're progressing or, uh. or anything else. And this this builds in the monitoring, which makes sense to me.
1: Yeah, And it also led to being able to have discussions with the athletes. Like uh, if they didn't go up for two weeks, it's like, all right, dude, well, what's going on, man? You know, are you sleeping? Are you eating? And then you, you might find out that uh, that his mom's lights got turned out and he sent his scholarship check back there, so he's got no food. You know, so then as a coach, there's things that we can't do, obviously, for NCAA regulations. But, you know, what we can do is we can know about the different services, so we can send them to the food bank. Mm-hmm. You know, we could, uh, let's say that their baby is sick, well, and their baby doesn't have health care. Well, we could send them over to the Family Health Center, uh, which has got a sliding scale or it's free. And we can also, they've got social workers there. We can get that kid signed up for Medicaid. You know, so as a coach, we could know, we could use that as a uh, a gateway of sorts to start a conversation to, you know, one, show the athletes we care and two, help the athletes get the services that they need.
0: Right. I like that it's a, it's an objective way to monitor as well. I mean, I've done some stuff with collegiate athletes where we're trying to monitor different things, like their performance and their recovery ability and that sort of thing. But we're, it's always subjective, you know, like how well are you sleeping? What's your appetite been like? What's your motivation to train? But these are all sort of psychological uh, check-ins. And what this does is this is actual physical performance check-in. I think actually it would mix with that quite nicely, right? So you can, like you said, you could open some certain conversations like why is this – is he sandbagging? Is there something physical that's going on or something psychological? Uh, but it does keep you away from that sort of rookie mistake, which is nope, nope, it's all linear and here's your program.
1: you know? Yeah, and I've made that mistake myself plenty of times.
3: Cool. If we uh, <laughs> translate, I think, those similar concepts into – Velocity-based training. We'll get into that. I've got a copy of your book here, uh, "Developing Explosive Athletes: Use of Velocity-Based Training in Training Athletes" from Ultimate Athletic Concepts. They can pick that up. Uh, I thought it was very good, very well done. It's Thank in you. depth, but not. I don't think it's going to be over the head of a lot of you know more intermediate type coaches. You know, it's not like trying to pick up a pure academic text and trying to figure out everything that's going on, but uh, very practical. And did the concepts from that APRE training kind of lead over into velocity-based training, or how did you get into that? Well, I got
1: into it from uh, somewhat funny story. So I was, you know, reading those translated Soviet texts, and if you look at uh, was it the Fundamentals of Special Strength Training by Voroshansky, and uh, it's either the Training of the Weightlifter, or the Management of the Weightlifter by R.A. Roman. They had in there these MS, MS. And I'm like, well, I know it's not multiple sclerosis because that didn't have a weird little, <laughs> little flash in the middle. So, what the heck is this? And uh, about eight, well, know, the next year, Rick and I drove out to uh, Westside Barbell and then up to the Cleveland Browns. And Louis Simmons had just put out an article on the Tendo unit. In Powerlifting USA that I was reading on the way out there, and I'm like, I think I know what this means. And then whenever Louie was using Nintendo during the uh, dynamic effort session, I'm like, I got it. And I told, I looked over at Rick, and I'm like, hey, man, I know exactly what to do with this thing. And so Rick ended up buying one, uh, calling over the phone with his credit card, and I think Lori uh, just you know, took a switch to his ass whenever he got home with his credit card call. <laughs> But uh, that's when it started. You know, I, I knew the stuff that they had done. And, you know, one of my favorite quotes is really what, it, you know, I, I'd say that I am with velocity-based training. And it's, uh, if I've seen further than other men, it's because I've stood upon the shoulders of giants. You know, Roman, Burkoschansky, uh, Ion Baroga, uh, the, the guys over in Spain. Um, like Fernando Pereja Blanco and uh, Luis Sanchez Medina and, uh, Gonzalez Bedio and, and all those guys, man. you know, if I've seen it further than other people, it's only because I've been looking at their work and, uh, I've been applying it towards athletes and then tweaking it here and there. And, uh, we've got our own line of research going right now that, uh, we'll have some stuff coming out this summer. Uh, for sure. As far as research abstracts and the, the articles should follow. Uh, but yeah, it was all because I had read those two books and then we took a trip out to West Side and we saw it. And on the way back, that's where the first edition of Lyssey Based Training essentially got written. And what do I say the first edition of it? Well, we made some changes to it and I didn't actually write the book then, but it got written as a function of the emails that I was getting on a, you know, daily and weekly basis while I was a graduate assistant here at Missouri. Uh, the word had gotten out that I knew what to do with this stuff. So people kept asking me questions and I just wrote the same thing so many times I was copying and pasting. And I'm like, you know, I got a lot of student loans to, to pay for. <laughs> maybe I could, you know, put this up as an ebook and that's what we did. And then, uh, it has expanded. It's over tripled in size. Uh, and the fourth edition, which I'm already working on is going to be significantly larger again. Uh and, uh, you know, things have changed. Uh, some things have changed. The, the core is still the core. But, um, you know, that, that's, that's the size of it, is that it, it came as me answering questions starting back in 2004. And uh, everything has just expanded with what I've learned and uh, what we've seen worked with the athletes, what we didn't see work with the athletes.
3: For people listening in, what is the kind of the basic reason for using velocity-based training? So if they're out there driving around in their car, walking or whatever, and they're like, huh, that sounds interesting. But what is the main benefit for them to use it, both for uh, strength and possibly even maybe hypertrophy, which could be a whole separate side topic, I know?
1: The, The hypertrophy, I really don't do it too much for hypertrophy. I don't recommend it for hypertrophy because bar velocity, well, you know, you can use it. Uh, and it's good feedback. So let me just start there. That, you know, at, at point blank. You know, for my book, linear position transducers, what everything is based off of, right? You can use accelerometers and you can use some other, other units too. But I've I've used linear position transducers for
3: fuck, 17, 18 years now. It's like a Tendo, Jim Aware, or things of that tendo nature, right? Wear. Yeah,
1: yeah. there's an actual string attached to the bar. And basically, you know, those... There's no calc. I mean, yeah, there's calculations, but there's no algorithm. There's no prediction. It's a tape measure and a stopwatch. You know, it's distance divided by time, and then you can use that to calculate some other things. Where with accelerometers, you've got to you know dictate the start and finish of the movement, and so sometimes they they're going to be different. Not that they're wrong. Not that they're inaccurate, but they measure differently.
3: So like a push device is an accelerometer-based device for
1: right push bar since they
3: uh, a bunch of them now.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's, there's tons of them.
3: Yeah.
1: Uh, I can't, yeah, I couldn't even start to name them all. MyoTest test back in the day was, uh, Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, I think they've since gotten out of business, but
3: yeah, uh, I'll save my stories about them.
1: <laughs> but, uh, you know, they, they measure differently. I, I won't say they're inaccurate cause they're, they're reliable, right? You're getting the same measurement every time. It's just different from the LPT. But basically, whenever you you start with velocity-based training, I would go in three or four levels. But at the basis, you've got feedback, right? You know that if you did better or worse on your previous on that repetition than your previous repetition, and it, that's an external cue, man. You know, so you know if you got to go faster, if you got to go harder, if you got to you know if you're dropping off. And that external cue, that simply that feedback, man, there was a study on pro-rugby guys, right, pro, professional yeah. rugby athletes. By, it was by Randall, uh, William Randall, I believe was the first author's name, but Nick Gill from the New Zealand All Blacks was on the paper. And they found with their rugby athletes that they did the same program with the same sets, the same reps, and even the same damn weight. The only difference between the two groups – was on squat jumps. One group received feedback of the velocity. The other group did not. The group that received feedback had better sprint times, better jump time uh, distances, better uh, strength scores than the group that did not receive feedback of velocity. So every time that they saw it, it was a motivational thing. You know, we've got to realize and take advantage of this. Some, some coaches were like, oh, these kids, all they ever do is go in to play video games. Mm-hmm. Well, we can sit there and complain about it. We can utilize that information and that knowledge to enhance our own training program. These athletes understand high score. They understand going faster than your, you know, going faster than your opponent, uh, than your teammate, your partner on the platform. So then that starts a competition between them. So then that starts additional motivation. So they move faster and faster and faster. And as long as the coach can maintain the athlete's technique, that leads to enhancement in results. So the next thing, the next level that we've got with it, that kind of goes hand-in-hand hand with the feedback, is that velocity is a neural capability. It is regulated by the autonomic nervous and central nervous system, the speed of sequentially recruiting motor units, right? So if, uh, long story short, I could go down that rabbit hole for a while, but I know we're, we're strapped for time, so I'm, I'm, I just won't because I can, you know, Mike, Mike is. Uh, I think you were, at, were you at CVAS when I gave like an hour and a half presentation on this. Yeah,
3: yeah, so, yeah, it was good.
1: Yeah, and I can go for two and a half, three hours if you know if somebody lets me. But basically, if you look at uh, the paper uh, by Eamon Flanagan and Mladen Yovanovic, it's like research-based applications of velocity-based training. They put in there some uh, data of an athlete over the course of a year, and they saw that there was the preseason one RM. That was tested, and it was a dotted line going across the screen. And there was a velocity-predicted 1RM. And velocity-predicted 1RMs are extremely accurate. Uh, We'll have something coming out on it before too long with college athletes. But uh, we saw that basically what they had shown was that some days they were like 22 kilos above their preseason-tested 1RM. And other days they were 18 kilos below their preseason-tested 1RM. So um, we know that whenever
3: we go it's into pretty the massive gym, variation,
1: it's huge, huge. That's freaking 40 kilos, 88 pounds, something like yeah. that. That's a huge difference. And it just kind of goes in with intuitively. How many days have we gone in and we lay down on the bench or we go into the squat rack and there's, we throw a plate on there and we step under there and we set it back on the rack and look. It's like, dude, are they messing with me? Did they put those <laughs> hundreds? What is that? Well, that velocity allows us to be right and allows us to utilize the appropriate load for any given day, right? So we know that if we want to be training at 0.8 meters per second, that's what I need to be at. So on old school dynamic effort work, you know, if you're going 60%, well, someday 60% is not 60% because of sleep, because of stress, because of additional things. That 60% might actually be 85% of my daily you know, 1RM, my daily max, like the Bulgarians would utilize. I don't have to test it, though, because I know that there's a concrete relationship between the velocity of the barbell percentage of 1RM. A study by Gonzalez Badillo and Sanchez Medina, or Sanchez Medina, I'll say it right for, you know, if Lorena Torres hears this, she always tells me I say his name wrong. Uh, <laughs> But basically, the greatest difference in a pre-test, post-test, whenever there was a 10% increase in 1RM, right, the corresponding velocity, so, you know, they might have gone from, uh, you know, they went up 10% of their 1RM, so whatever that actual absolute load would have been has increased and changed, so they go faster that absolute load, but at their re- corresponding percentage of 1RM, the greatest difference was, like, point. Zero, well, it was .014 something and almost rounded up to 0.02, right? Uh, but the greatest difference was 0.01. I mean, we're talking a hundredth of a meter per second was the greatest difference with a 10% increase in strength. That relationship is concrete. So we know that if normally I'm moving, just using my own stuff, uh, 185 for 0.8 meters per second on the bench press. Well, for, there's another day that um, you know, I've got a, a 17-month-old, let's say she hasn't slept in a couple of nights, uh, so I've been eating like crap, having too much caffeine, I'm dehydrated. The only thing I can move is 165 at that 0.8 meters per second. Well, dude, that's 60% for that day. And let's say that you know a, a couple of weeks go by, I've been eating good, I've been sleeping, I'm moving 225 at 0.8 meters per second. Well, that's my 60% for that day. So that concrete relationship allows you to utilize the right load on any given day. And in college athletics, that is huge because we've got different levels of players that uh, play. I mean, we can look at basketball or football or whatever. You know, uh, if the basketball game is 40 minutes, we're going to have guys that play 30 minutes, men and ladies who might play 30, 35 minutes of the game. We might have players that play 5 to 10 minutes of the game. We might have players that don't play at all. And then the subsequent day, whenever they come in to lift, well, the person who's got 35 minutes—if I prescribe 70% of one RM—well, guess what? That 70% might be close to their one RM that day, and that's a good way to get somebody hurt, or a good way to drive them into additional fatigue and, diff- and additional, you know, uh, central fatigue, which would lead to overtraining. Uh, it might be too low for the person who's not playing much or not playing at all because they've actually adapted and they've got greater strength than they did on their pre preseason season tested one RM. So for the college athletics or professional athletics, it allows them to train at that exact load that they need to be at that exact day. So within the book, the developing the explosive athlete, uh, I've got some data that we're coming out with. that kind of contradicts a little bit of uh, some other people's data that kind of uh, Shows that the slopes are the same versus different. But, you know, one of the things that people criticize me on is that I like to use velocity zones. And I like to use velocity zones because of the environment that I came from. If you're working with football and track, which are two of the sports that I had, you've got over 100 people on each team. You often have over 60 people in the weight room at one time. And if I were to try and go and give prescribe an individual velocity for each person at which they uh, do peak power or accelerative strength or whatever that happens to be, I'm going to have 60 different velocities that I've got to pay attention to in one session. I'm not going to be able to remember them. And unfortunately, with some of the athletes I've dealt with, I know that they're not going to be able to remember them. And some of them, I'm not sure if they could read the sheet if I put the velocity on a piece of paper and put it right in front of them. But what I can do is something that I call good enough. You know, I think this is where science and coaches have to kind of come to an understanding that there is precision for research, but there needs to be application, applicability, and implementability, implementability if that's even a word, for the practitioner. That uh, if I just give 0.8 meters per second for everybody, because I know that's about the the speed on average that 96% of my team will be using, that's good enough for me. You know, cool. 96% plus or minus 0.04. So there will be some people who need to be at 0.76. Some people might need to be at 0.84. And then you will have your freaks. You do have your freaks. But guess what I'm going to do is I'm going to adjust for my freaks. But I'm not going to go individualize for everybody, man. That, should, that takes too much time. It's not. It's not possible. Uh, you know, so there is criticism on me for velocity zones versus individual velocities, but man, you know what, if it works for 96% of the people, I'm good with it.
3: Yeah, that, that's awesome. And as we wind down here, so would you say that I'm kind of paraphrasing what you're saying here, that one of the main benefits of velocity based training is that you can get more accurate, say whatever percentage of one around you're working at, if we translate it into that without necessarily having to test their 1RM every day, right? You were saying you can do a percentage, I know I should be at x velocity, and now I know without driving them all the way up to a a 1RM or close to it, if I need to go up or down. Is that a correct statement?
1: That's a correct statement. And uh, depending on the unit that you use, some of them will actually give you a daily 1RM prediction. Uh, I know Jim does that. I know they do it because I use it. You know, and and so then you can even use that as a metric of uh, kind of like a retrospective. uh, You're monitoring, not looking at the readiness for the day, but monitoring the trend. Are they moving up or are they moving down over the course of time? So, you know, not looking at the one offs and freaking out about those. But uh, yeah, you can use that as a, a general
3: monitoring tool. Cool. Well, I mean, I know you have to run, but we thank you very much for your time here and if People want to pick up your book, Dr. Mann, Developing Explosive Athletes. Where would they get it? And uh, any other info you want to give out about yourself?
1: Yeah, well, Ultimate Athletes.com, Ultimate uh, Athlete uh, is where they can pick it up at. Uh, I think it, Hammer Media is carrying it. I think oh, nice. uh, I know it's on Amazon as well. Um, yeah, I don't know if other uh, people are carrying it or not. Hopefully, you know, they do. I'm, uh, I'm not sure if Elite FTS is carrying it yet or not, if Westside Barbell is carrying it yet or not. I, I have no idea. They can pick it up there. But uh, if I could uh, take a second just to uh, take just a, a, a quick podium pedestal or whatever, that uh, one of the big things that I've got is that, you know, we constantly hear people complaining about the field and what needs to be done. Well, you know, they're always blaming the NSCA or pointing fingers at the NSCA. Well, guess what? The NSCA is a member-driven organization. There, I believe, are 64 people who work in the national headquarters, international headquarters, and there's 26,000 members. So if you want something to happen, you've got to do it yourself. Uh, and in doing that, I'm, uh, I took over the state director from uh, the state of Missouri, and on the, the 29th of April, we've got just a hell of a clinic down here uh, in Columbia, Missouri, but we've got, and, uh, in conjunction with that, we're also going to be doing the new lifts course, the hands-on course, uh, that's, you know, hands-on, uh, technical coaching, uh, here at, uh, yeah, here at the university of Missouri. Cool. Hey, and how
3: can people find know, out about that? Is well, a it's on
1: the NSCA website. Uh, if they follow me on Twitter. I've been posting stuff about that. Uh, I haven't posted anything about the lifts course cause that just got approved at like, I, I read the email at 9:30 last night. I don't know what time I actually got approved, but uh, it's it's brand new in the uh, the approval process. That we're gonna we're actually gonna do it a little bit differently. We're gonna split the clinic, so we're going Friday night. We'll do half of the course, and then we'll do the other half of the course on Sunday with the clinic on Saturday. So it turns into a uh, a weekend of you know strength essentially.
3: Awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming on the program today on Iron Radio. We greatly
0: appreciate it
1: it's my pleasure thanks for having me guys
0: thank you thanks brian okay everyone we'll see you next week all right thank you guys
1: thank you you.
0: (laughs) hey listeners have you seen the store at ironradio.org there are three halls in the store, one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each Hall of Iron are actually based on our own recommendations protein powders that we know to be good, Uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening.